David, you know, he, he was, we talked about how many different facets he had, how he was just different sides and, and different uh, ways that you can look at him. You know, he was a faithful servant to King Saul. He was a fearless warrior. He was an anointed musician. He was a brilliant military strategist. He was a talented poet. He was a repentant man after God's own heart. But one thing that David was not good at, David was horrible at family. He was horrible at family. Even beyond the, the inherent problems of polygamy and adultery, which we'll talk a little bit about that tonight, David's greatest family weakness was his poor parenting. See, the reality was David was a far better king than he was a father. And we're going to see some of that tonight. The, the, tonight we're moving into the evening of his life. You know, we've kind of broken it in. We've done with, dealt with the morning time, the early part, and we've dealt with the, the afternoon. And now it's the evening of his life. And, and the last part of his life, you know, it should have been filled with... Uh, uh, years of peace and prosperity and blessings, but David did not have a happily ever after because uh, instead of reaping the rewards of his early years, earlier years of sacrifice, now he's still dealing with the fallout of his own own sin. And so instead of the happily ever after, he faced a, a, a civil war. This time was led by his, his enraged and bitter son. And, and even in the last days of his, of his life, he had to deal with a pol political plot that's just too unreal to have been made up. And, and as we look at David, I've said before, and I'll remind you again, that you, he, we must see David in the context of the times in which he lived. He was not a 21st century Christian. He cannot be held to our expectations for a man of God today. He was a, a, a primitive warlord in a, in a, at the end of the Bronze Age. He was a warrior king of a nation that was fighting sur for survival. He was a polygamist with several wives and even more concubines. And as we look at that, we realize there are, there are serious complications in any polygamous household. Polygamy was commonplace in David's day. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was considered commonplace. However... It was never God's best or highest plan for marriage. And, and, and God had always been clear about his will for marriage. One man, one woman. You know, when he created Adam and Eve, it wasn't Adam and Eve and Jill and Susie. And, you know, it was just Adam and Eve. That was what he created. He said, this is what marriage is. And, and, and polygamy complicates and politicizes everything. It turns the family into this deal where everybody's trying to sort of uh, jog for position and try to figure out who's up higher, who's lower, and it's this constant battle uh, of, of plotting people and half-siblings competing for love, competing for approval, and, and competing for the, the, the estate, the money of the, of the man that they share. And so now what we need to understand is that God dealt with David in the era in which he lived and David walked in the light that he had. And the light that he had included polygamy. Now, here's what I want to make clear about. That does not mean that God shielded David from the disastrous effects of, of polygamy. David's multiple families became uh, the source of some of the greatest pain in David's later years. And the fruit of his polygamous lifestyle would, would rise up and haunt David and his kingdom for the rest of his life. Now the worst of it began uh, with, and we're going to be dealing with some adult issues, but we're all adults in here, except for the really tiny one that doesn't, doesn't really care. Uh, but uh, 
the, the worst of it, <laughs> the worst of it began with a young man's la- lust for his own half sister. David's oldest son, Amnon, he believed that he had fallen in love with his half sister, Tamar. Now, in fact, it was, wasn't love. We, we see that from the results, but it was nothing more than sexual obsession. And, and knowing his father would never allow him to marry his half sister, Amnon, he just he hatched this pathetic plan to lure her into his room and to, and to rape her. And Amnon, what he did was he pretended to be sick and claimed to be unable to get out of bed. And, and listen to what he said. I mean, think of this. When his father asked him what make him feel better, this is what he said. He said, he said you know what? If my dear sister Tamar would, could, if she could just come by and fix some food for me here at the side of my bed and feed it to me uh, by hand, I'm sure that I'll feel better. Now, now listen, when you hear that, it's, it's no less preposterous in David's day than it is for us today. You know, when you hear that, you realize, okay, that is really weird. You know, that's really not going to make somebody who's sick better. And it's, it's just patently absurd on his face. But, but, it, but the, the thing that is unexplainable to us is that David actually agreed to his son's request and sent Tamar to do as her brother asked. Now, the thing is, David is a man of the world. He has not forgotten uh, that night so many years ago when he quote unquote, innocently asked Bathsheba's name and sent for her. He knows what's going on. He knows what the world's about. He knows. And so at Amnon's strange request to be hand fed by his half sister, I'm just telling you, David must have had some doubts. He must have had something in him, this intuitive sense that that something is off here. Something's not right. Why would he want his half sister to, to, to come in and hand feed him by the side of his bed. It, you know, it, it's just off. But in, st- but in spite of that, he gave his consent. So David, you know, overrode his own doubts and, and, and ignoring, you know, that, that sense inside of you, he sent his daughter to his son's bedroom. And the horrible result was a foregone conclusion. After Amnon uh, got her in there, he raped her. And after he raped the virgin Tamar, then what he did was he banished her from his presence. He said, get out of here. I don't want to even see you. You know, I tell, I, when I was in youth ministry, I would tell girls, you know, the, the boy that's pressuring you to do something that you know you don't want to do and that you know is not right, that very boy, when he gets what he wants, he will, he will move on and leave you in the dust because they think it's all about love, but for that boy, it's all about conquering. And, and then when my hunt is done and I get what I want, I'm going to go on another hunt. And, uh, and, and this is what happened. He didn't care. He, he suddenly, you know, would looked at her and he was disgusted with her. He couldn't stand her uh, to see her. And Tamar, in response, uh, uh, David's daughters had these, these beautiful dresses that they would wear. And they, they would wear them while they were virgins. And so Tamar, her response when she left Amnon's bedroom was, was that she tore her dress. And that's more than just sorrow. That's a sign. That's a signal that she's saying, I'm not a virgin anymore. And so, and, and she, in fact, in response to this, she begged Amnon. She said, please, please, would you ask my father if we could marry? Because, because you have, you know, you've done this to me and, and I don't, I don't want to live with this. You know, you did it. So let's get married. Let's just be man and wife. And she begged, but Amnon, 
He could no longer stand the sight of her and he forced her to leave in disgrace. So Tamar, she also had another, she had a full brother. Amnon was her half-brother. But she had a full brother whose name we all know very well. His name was Absalom. Their mother was, was Ma'aka. Uh, she was the daughter of the king of Geshur. And, and seeing his sister tear her robe and put ashes on her head, seeing this sorrow, Amnon, you know, Absalom, try, Absalom tried to console his devastated sister. And she told him everything that had happened. And what he did was, you can read it, she ended up going and living in his house. She, he sent her to his place, someplace to live to, uh, to, uh, where she could be uh, alone, where she didn't have to go, you know, deal with the shame of the, of the situation in public. And, and Tamar, in response, more or less, she basically had a nervous breakdown as a young unmarried woman. And, and, and she grieved for the rest of her life and never again left the protection of her big brother's house. Now, here's the thing. This is the part where we get to David's parenting skills or lack thereof. David's response to this situation, his son has raped his daughter. Now, they were half brother and sister, but they were still, both of them were his children. His response, this is what the Bible says. The scriptures say that King David was very angry at the rape of Tamar. The King James, I love some of the wording of King James. It says he was wroth. He was wroth with Amnon. It's a strong word used to describe his, his emotions. It's the same word used to describe Cain before he killed his brother out of jealousy. It's the same word that was used to describe Jacob's sons in Genesis 34 when they, when they learned that their sister had been raped. It's this, it's this terrible burning anger. So he was very, very angry. But the problem was... According to what scripture tells us, that's all he did. He just got mad. He was just angry. So, you know, the, the reality is what did this fearless warrior David do when he heard of this incestuous rape in his own family? Absolutely nothing. And while Absalom, he loves his sister, he's Seeing her grieve, he knows what this other, what his half-brother has done, and now he watches, and his father's doing nothing about it, and, and, and he sheltered you know, his sister during this time, and, and while this is happening, his hatred for Amnon just continues to fester, and his father's refusal to punish Amnon, it just pushed Absalom to a breaking point. I mean, listen, at, at a minimum... David should have thrown Amnon in jail, but by Jewish law, he should have been executed. Something needed to have been done, but David, I mean, he didn't even take the easy way out and say, well, I can't kill my own son. You know, we'll just, you know, put, banish him or we'll, uh, you know, put him in jail or something. But, but David did nothing. Actually, that's not quite true. He did do one thing. The one thing he did was he made an enemy out of his own son, Absalom. And, and so, you know, the, the reality is, as we look at a situation like this, we need to understand there are times, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean by this because this doesn't sound uh, right, but there are times to show grace and there are times not to show grace. Uh, and if you get those times backwards, you'll cause un unbelievable damage. What I mean by that is there are times when, uh, when there's some sort of uh, you know, somebody has clearly done something wrong. There are times 
when you are able to forgive and you're able to let that go. And other times when there needs to be something done in response to that. And there, there's some variables into that. But, you know, with your children, with employees, if you have them, other, other people under your leadership, there will be times when uh, you have to be gentle and loving and gracious. But there are other times, and it's not just, it's not just for you, it's for their sakes. There are other times when you've just got to put the hammer down. You know what I'm talking about? Every parent in here probably knows what I'm talking about because there are times when you just know that at this moment what I really need to do is sit down and talk with my child and we need to work through it because there's some repentance there and I can see there's brokenness in their life about what they've done. Then there are other times when they do something and you realize if I don't do something now, this child is not going to understand the seriousness of this situation. And so you, as a, being a good parent, you put the hammer down. Anybody here ever put the hammer down on your children? How many of you ever got the hammer put down on you? I'm, I'm going to use this phrase. I'm going to start using this in my household. Like, Girl, you better go clean your room or I'm going to put the hammer down. <laughs> They'll look at me like, what are you talking about? <laughs> They'll just walk away and say, it's just dad. I don't know. The, 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 see, now the tendency of the legalist is always going to be to... Uh, to expose and punish every sin. But the tendency of the person who doesn't understand the relationship between grace and truth and grace and justice, the tendency for the person who wants to just be, you know, just focus on the grace, the tendency will be to say, oh, it's okay. We'll, we'll figure, it'll be all right. And many, many times in the middle is where, you know, you know we've, we've talked about it before, we, we have to be people of grace. Tamaria needs grace. She needs grace. But you know what she also needs? She needs truth. And that's why there's power when those two are together. Uh, but when you take them apart and you apply them separately, they're not nearly as effective. If, if, Wendy, if you had just gone to her and started preaching her, to her about all of her past sins, she's not going to listen to any of that. All you're going to end up pushing your way. But at the same time, if, if, if it's just grace and it's just, oh, we just love you, we just love you. Oh, but I've done so much, so much wrong. Oh, God doesn't care about that. That doesn't help her either in the long run. And the truth is the grace that we're showing at this point in time, what we're praying for is, is it gives us the platform, the right to be heard when the time comes to be able to speak the truth. But when leadership, you know, like David, when, he does, when, when leadership does nothing to protect the oppressed, then what it ends up doing is it fuels the anger of those who then take up the offense, because that's what Absalom did. See, nothing had ever actually been done to him. It was to his sister, but he picked up the offense, and which, by the way, is a, is a danger for all of us uh, and, uh, you know, there's some different motivational gifts. Maybe one day the, the Lord will let me teach on those. But one of those that came out of Romans 12, one of those is the gift of mercy, which that's a person that loves to give mercy. But, you know, the person with the gift of mercy, you know who they, who they don't show mercy to? To the one that's not showing the mercy that they think should be shown, then they can be really, really brutal with that person. And, and uh, anyway, I don't even remember where I was going with that. But... Uh, uh, but, uh, it, 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 well, I know what I say. They, they can see something and, and say, you know, this person here, 
has been hurt and they, have, they feel mercy and they feel love and compassion for this person. But if the person in charge doesn't do anything to deal with this, then they can then begin to take up the offense and they can carry that torch for that person. And then the bitterness begins to come in. Here's the problem with picking up the offense for somebody else. You ready to hear this? Here's the big problem. Uh, let's say, let's say that, that, that Gina has offended Anna. And then Candy doesn't like the fact that Anna has been offended by Gina, so she gets mad at Gina. All right, let's say Gina and Anna, the Holy Spirit works on their lives, and they get together, and, and Gina says, you know, I, I'm, would you please forgive me? I was wrong, and Anna says, I forgive you, and their relationship is restored. But nothing has happened with Candy. Because there's really no mechanism, you know, Gina didn't do anything to Candy, so, you know, how is she going to go to her and ask for forgiveness? And so, when you pick up somebody else's offense, and you carry that torch for them, the, the, it's much easier for, the, for you to hang on to that bitterness because how do you get past that? Because you were not the one that... Have, nobody can make it right with you. And so that's something, you know, as a side, that's a whole different line of teaching we'll do on another time. But anyway, after two years of, of comforting his, his sister, Absalom's rage, it just grew to where it just knew no bounds. Now, clearly... To him, he knew David was not going to do anything to punish Amnon. So Absalom said, all right, if he's not going to do it, I'm going to take care of things myself. So he began to plot his vengeance. And, and Absalom held a, a banquet one night, and, he, and, and all of David's sons, all the king's sons were there, including Amnon. And, and he, was, he, was, he had set it up to celebrate the, the occasion of all of his sheep being sheared, and he, had, and he had this hefty prophet, and it was all going to be wonderful. And he was like, I'm going to celebrate all my, all my half-brothers. You know, you come and join me in the celebration. It's going to be a great night. And, and so late, late into the evening, you know, they're all enjoying themselves, and they're drinking and having a good time. And Amnon, late in the evening, when he was good and drunk, Absalom then just steps up, and he snaps his fingers, and his, and his followers, his soldiers that he had there immediately jump in and they stab Amnon to death. Now that moment, panic ensued. Because listen, if, you're the all, if all the sons of the king are there and one son of the king attacks others, another son of the king, it was not that uncommon for, somebody to, for one of these kings when you have all this, again, this is that the political things that go on in a polygamous uh, home. You know, all these, the natural thought is, oh, this son wants to be the king. He's going to kill us all because if we're all dead, nobody else to worry about and he'll be the king. And so this is what they thought was happening. And so all of his, all those other brothers, the panic just ensued and the remaining brothers ran for their lives. And, and word gets to David. How many, of you, how many of you ever played the game gossip? You know what I'm talking about? You know the one where you got a, like a long string of people and one person at the, at the front says one thing and by the time it gets all the way to the end... It's completely different, isn't it? Well, somebody, somebody once said a, a lie will travel around the world uh, twice before the lie gets there once. Well, somehow the word gets to David, only what the word that comes to him was not accurate because he was told uh, that all of his sons had been killed, that Absalom had killed all of them. 
So David in that moment, obviously he's just devastated and he's just hysterical with grief and he, he tore his clothes and he fell prostrate on the floor. But not long after that, David received, uh, the, not, after he re not long after he received that message, his nephew, Jonadab, uh, came in and clarified and he said, David, my uh, king, I want you to understand, not all of them, only Amnon has been killed. Absalom killed Amnon. He's the only one that's dead. Now, now think about this. David knows all these things. By now, I'm sure he's putting the, you know, connecting the dots, figuring out what's going on. Okay, a Amnon raped Tamar, who's the sister of Absalom. I know what's happened here, but by now, by that time, Absalom, he's out of town. He's gone. He's fled. And he, he, he Amnon, now the truth, Absalom has fled, I should say. Amnon, here's the reality. According to Jewish law, he deserved to be executed for the rape of Tamar, didn't he? That's what the law said. However, that execution should have been ordered by King David, and it should not have been carried out years later by a vengeful brother. Now, and now that one of his sons had killed the other, David just compounds the error. See, because David had not fully dealt with Amnon. He didn't deal with the situation. He didn't deal with Amnon. And now he doesn't know how to handle the, the lethal Absalom. Absalom the, the reality is Absalom's bloodlust would not end with Amnon's death. See, you would think, oh, he got his vengeance. Everything will be good now. But, but, but what happened to Tamar was this horrible thing. And David didn't handle it wisely or justly as a king or as a father. And, and still, even after he got his vengeance... Absalom was not satisfied. He was not going to be satisfied. And he lived the rest of his life in anger and rebellion. And in the end, he was destroyed by his own murderous rage. And though Amnon was dead, he was, he, uh, that revenge did not make him feel any better. Which, by the way, that's a lesson right there. If you start trying to take revenge, you think it will bring you closure. You think it will make you feel better. It does not do that. All it does is continue to fuel the anger and the hatred and the bitterness that's been there that makes you want to have the vengeance. It does not make you feel better. It just makes things worse. And, and, and Absalom is not satisfied. Now he, he wanted more blood because he wanted David's. And so anyway, Absalom fled Jerusalem. And he spent his years, uh, the next few years in, in exile, plotting his return, plotting his rebellion. And, and, and I want you to understand this. This is something, uh, it's really important to understand. A day will come, I don't care who you are, a day will come when somebody is going to do something that you don't like or that you don't approve of. A day will come when somebody will do something that will offend you. All right, you need to understand that because offense, in essence, it, it's, it's unmet expectations. You're going to hear me talk a lot about this. So, uh, so if you expect never to be offended, you've already set yourself up for an offense, which there's a great book by John Bevere called The Bait of Satan. One day I want to, I want to teach the, that, whole, that whole series uh, because he talks about the fact that that the biggest trap that the enemy uses in the church of America is the trap of offense that uh, causes us to, to break down as a church and causes a churches not to be able to move forward and breaks relationships and tears up family because something will happen and the offense will come. Then in that moment in time, we have a choice 
what am I going to do with that offense? Right? And so that moment we can say, I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to carry it on my back for the next 20 years. Or we can say, I'm going to leave that alone. I'm going to honor Christ with my life. I'm going to let it go and learn how to walk in forgiveness instead of offense. Again, that's a whole different lesson. But the day is going to come. The day is going to come when you're going to, when somebody's going to do something you don't like, that you don't approve of, that brings offense to you, that makes you angry. Hopefully, your response won't be like Absalom and you won't kill them. <laughs> you know, I don't want you, you know, knifing anybody in the pews or anything like that. We frown uh, 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 on that around here. Uh, but, but you know what? There are other ways that we do it. We're not so uh, overt as that. We're a lot more covert uh, because we we find other ways to weave a fabric of revenge and rebellion and, and, and sedition. And, you know, like maybe you, you begin to spread innuendos about their character. You don't actually really say anything, but you just say, well, I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but I heard maybe this. Or, or you, you, maybe you take, begin to take part in gossip. And, and we're really good about this in the church because we love to gossip. And then we justify it as saying, well, I just have a concern. I just, have a, I just have a prayer request I want to share with you, and I want you to know how to pray. So let me tell you this 35-minute long story with all the details so that you'll know everything that's happening. And we begin to spread gossip, or maybe, maybe you look for subtle ways to just kind of dig the knife in their back, or maybe you, 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 you sow seeds of doubt about your leader, or maybe you don't do that. Maybe you just out and out rebel, and, and, and you just go on the attack on this person. But I want you to know, if you do this, the end for you will be like the end for Absalom. Because the end of that approach is always death. Now, I'm not saying you're going to be hanging from a tree and somebody's going to run a spear through you. You know, that's probably not going to happen. But I am saying that it will kill you. If it doesn't kill you physically, it'll choke your life out spiritually. And if, if you build a lifetime of rebellion against somebody else's sins it's going to destroy you because here's the reality i'm going to tell you something that everybody in this room knows the universe is unjust life is not fair you know we tell i've told that to my girls so many times when when, uh, you know, when something happens and it's not fair and I'll tell them, listen, I'm really sorry that you're hurt by this, but I need you to understand this because I want you to have realistic ex expectations to going into life. Not everybody cares about fairness in this world and life is unfair. Sometimes things are going to happen. You know, somebody's going to pass away. There's going to be an accident that claims somebody. There are things that are just not going to seem fair. Life is not fair. And in that moment, you can choose to live a life of integrity and character. And if you do that, then life's injustices are not going to rob you of the healing power of God. But when we latch on to those injustices, when we hold on to those things, then what we're doing is we're, we're, we're preventing the Spirit of God from bringing the healing that needs to come to our lives. Well, at the end of three years of, of self-imposed exile, Absalom launched a campaign to be recalled to Jerusalem. His pawn in this was Joab, which to me is very fascinating because Joab 
was a seriously lethal human being. He was the guy that, you know, David's top general that if anybody needed to be killed, Joab's like, hey, I'll do it. You know, he was just seriously lethal. And, and there, you know, he was, it's funny to me because I, I just have a hard time picturing any kind of uh, familial compassion in Joab. Uh, it, you know, I've said before, if David was Wyatt Earp, then, then Joab was his trigger-happy Doc Holliday. You know, that's just who they were. And, and, and it's hard to see this. But Joab is the one who comes to David and says, David, listen, I know that Absalom killed Amnon, and that was wrong. I hate that he did that. But you can't have your son living outside of Israel for the rest of his life. Please consider inviting him back. And when David agreed, and he allowed Absalom to return to Jerusalem, but yet again, David, his tendency to do things halfway in, with his family comes to the surface again because he allowed Absalom back into Jerusalem, but he would not allow him into the palace and he would not allow him into his presence. So now we have David never fully punished Amnon and now David never fully forgives Absalom, which would have meant welcoming him back into the home with open arms. Instead, he told his son, you can come back to Israel, but I don't want to see your face. Well, I guarantee that did nothing to calm the bitterness in Absalom's heart. So he remained in an emo emotional exile, even while he was living in Jerusalem. And you know, someday you may have an employee or an associate or even a family member who, who fouls things up big time. You ever known somebody, have anybody in your family that was close that, that made some really big mistakes and really messed things up? Well, listen, see, <laughs> seize the opportunity to show them grace and here's the key. This is when you know. This is one of the ways you know. Obviously, you listen to the voice of the Lord. But you seize the opportunity to show them grace if they submit to the process of restoration. See, that's the key. I mean, I've known, I've known pastors that failed morally. Uh, some, of them, you know, some of them are very famous. I'm not going to mention any names, but, but they failed morally in massive ways. And, but instead of submitting to the process that the Assemblies of God, assemblies of God has to, to bring rehabilitation to uh, where they, offer, they can, they can uh, be restored to their ministry, those same ministers said, no, I, I can't do that. My ministry is too big and too important. They need me. And so, and so they did not do that. They didn't submit to the process. Uh, but, but when somebody is willing to say, listen, I will do what I need to do. I will pay whatever needs to be paid. I will go through the process of repentance. I'll go through the, whatever needs to happen. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, and they truly show repentance for what they've done. Then you show them grace and, you, and hopefully that the, the Spirit of the Lord will finish that work and they'll be fully restored. But if, if they don't do that, if they choose not to submit to the process, then there has to, there has to come a moment where you deal with it all the way. See, in that situation I talked about, you know, a minister like that, then there comes a point in time when they say, well, no, I'm not going to go through the process. The Assemblies of God had to make a decision at that point in time because this person gave a lot of money to the Assemblies of God. And, and, and they had to make a decision at that point in time where they say, are we going to just turn our, a blind eye or are we going to say, okay, you, you cannot be associated with the Assemblies of God anymore. And, and they had to deal with it all the way. David failed to deal with his children. 
He never dealt with Amnon for raping Tamar and, Tamar, and so Absalom took matters into his own hands. Then David refused to deal with Absalom and allowed Absalom's self-imposed exile to be the solution. He, you know, Absalom is gone. He's out of my sight. I don't have to deal with it anymore. Finally, David allowed Absalom to come back to Jerusalem, but not to his presence in the palace. You know, the reality is halfway discipline followed by halfway forgiveness put David's family and his nation in jeopardy. And, and so for us, we need to say, I, I don't want to make the same mistakes. There, I have to deal with the issue fully. Is there anybody here that would say, man, I love to deal with conflict? Let me see your hand. Because if you do, I'm going to find you professional help. Because <laughs> something wrong with you. No, no, you know, very few people, you know, there are a lot of people that are not afraid to deal with it. They'll go in, you know, they don't hesitate, but the very few people that say, yeah, that's, I really like that. And so there, there are times when we have to understand, uh, punting it down the road, all that does is allow it time to get worse so that when you're forced to deal with it, it's going to explode all over again. And so when the time comes where you have to deal with something, even if it's someone you love, even if it's a child, even if it's a parent, well, it's kind of harder with a parent, you know, you can't do, make them do much of anything. But, but sometimes you, 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 when it comes, the issue comes to, to, to light, you have to deal with the issue. You have to, to, to confront. That's what Nathan did. You know, Nathan, um, he was taking a risk there because David could easily have looked at him when he said, David, you're the man, you have sinned. Judgment is coming on your house. He could have, like other kings in other situations, said, looked at Joab and said, Joab, take this guy out. I don't have to take this from him. I'm the king. You can't talk to me that way. So he took the risk and he confronted and he did what he had to do. And sometimes that's what we have to do. Firm, robust, and redemptive leadership pays great dividends. And you say leadership. Well, that's because everybody here is a leader to some degree or another. The essence of leadership is influence. There's somebody's life that you influence, therefore you are a leader in their life. Well, after three years in a foreign exile and two years of silence in Jerusalem, Absalom still could not get over his sister's rape. The bitterness had taken full hold. He had this plan in his mind. He was going to become king. He was going to get rid of David. He was going to deal with this situation because his, in his mind, David didn't deserve to be king anymore. Uh, in fact, he, he, we know he couldn't get over it. In fact, he was so overwhelmed with this, he actually memorialized his, his sister and, and what happened by naming his own daughter Tamar. Now that's you know, that's, that wasn't just a sweet brotherly gesture. That was the bitter act of a vengeful man saying, I will not forget Tamar. What, what Amnon did to Tamar was horrible. And then tragically, Absalom let that poison his spirit with hatred and with rebellion. Absalom received, a, 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 he, he, excuse me, devised a new uh, plan of revenge that could only be fulfilled if his relationship with his father was renewed uh, that the king had refused to see him to this point in time. So Absalom uh, knew, he knew who, whom he needed to contact. Because last time Joab was kind of his advocate in the, in the court. And so, so Joab, he had successfully appealed before and allowed Absalom to come back to Jerusalem. And this time he said, that's who I need to, I contact, I'll send an email to Joab. He'll get me in. And only this time Joab refused to answer any of his emails. 
He refused to see Absalom. Time after time after time again, he refused to respond. And Absalom's response, his solution to Joab not seeing him was to set fire to Joab's barley field. All right? A confused and angry Joab, he comes in and said, Absalom, why did you burn my barley field? And Absalom's answer was a cold, steady, answer your emails. Listen, cold-blooded overreaction to a, is a dead giveaway that something is really wrong. You know, I mean, somebody that's like, hey, they didn't say hi to me. I'm going to go shoot their dog. You know, that's, when, when things are out of whack like that, that's just a sign that there's something, that's a danger signal. That's, there's something going on inside there, and you would be wise to pay attention when someone burns your field because you don't answer their emails. That, that's a person that bears watching because something is wrong inside. Ignore that, and you'll suffer for it. But the problem was neither Joab nor David suspected Absalom's real intentions. They didn't pay attention. You know, his creepy pyromaniac tendencies should have warned them, but they didn't. They, were, they didn't take heed of that, and instead Absalom was invited back into David's household. So David's oldest son now, the crown prince Absalom, now, now restored into the kingdom. He wasted no time setting his plan in the next phase of his, of his mutiny in motion. The scriptures say that he, he, he bought a chariot and horses and he hired 50 bodyguards to run, of, run ahead of him. And on his personal parades through the city, uh, he, he, the, the trumpets would blow for him and the footmen running in front of him began to shout, Absalom is coming! Absalom is coming! I mean, he puts on this, this self-exalting show. Which, by the way, is another red flag. Uh, you know, when someone is constantly bringing attention to themselves, especially at the expense of somebody else, that's a red flag. There's something going on there. There's something wrong. And, and, and I find it especially true. It's, it's something we need to pay attention, attention to in Pentecostal circles because you, when you see someone who is, quote, unquote, super, super spiritual. You ever known somebody who was just super spiritual? You know, and, and, and when they... When, when, when the, the Lord is moving, when they have to put on a show to make sure everybody sees how spiritual they are, red flag. Because if all the attention is being drawn to them, you can rest assured that's not the Holy Spirit. Because if it's the, Holy, if it's the Spirit of God, all the attention is going to be going to Jesus. So, so be careful when you see that. Uh, thankfully, I can tell you this, I haven't seen anything near that here. I've seen it before in other places where somebody, you know, has to, has to make a big show about how God is using them. You know, listen, if God's using you, you don't have to put on a show. But anyway, that's a side note. Now, Absalom, he's out there. He's doing these self-exalting shows, parading through the city. Um, uh, the Bible tells us he was strikingly handsome. And like some of those people in the world that are strikingly handsome, I can't relate with them, but, but he knew it. You ever known somebody that was really good looking and they knew they were really good looking? <laughs> I'm just going to ignore that, Josh. You might want to move away. There might be a lightning bolt coming down. No, I'm teasing. The thing was, see, he, Absalom wanted the eyes of Israel on him, not on David. 
He wanted everybody to pay attention to him. He wanted to gain their attention. When those wishing to bring a case to the king for judgment passed by, Absalom would, he would stop, he would listen to their stories, and he would tell them, basically he'd say, you know what, you have a... You have a really strong case here. Too bad King David's so backlogged, he can't, he can't hear you himself, and he's not going to send out a deputy to hear you. He'd say, I wish I could be your judge because I'd, I rule in your favor for sure. So instead of being grateful for being allowed to come home, Absalom became this, this ruthless demagogue, and he, he took every opportunity to cast David in a bad light. For example, one of the things he would do is that he, would, he refused to allow people to bow to him. Now, in their culture, bowing, that was the appropriate and accepted uh, response, the, the proper way to, to acknowledge uh, somebody, a high official like the crown prince. It was normal, it was expected that if the crown prince showed up, you would da- bow before him. And instead, Absalom would, would pull him up and say, oh, no, 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 my father likes that kind of stuff, but that's not really my thing. Come up here, come up here in the chariot and just give me a kiss, give me a hug. And it, it really wasn't about, you know, that he was trying to, trying to really love those people. It was all about using that act of informality to try to make his father, King David, look bad. See, that's one of those subtle ways that we're talking about that we can stab somebody without actually stabbing them physically. Absalom, he was exploiting this natural desire to have a close, intimate relationship with a powerful and attractive member of the royal family. And, and he also claimed that he was willing to fight for them and fight for their causes. And, and the reality was Absalom was, was hardly, you know, the everyman good fellow that he pretended to be. He was, in fact, nothing more than an insidious rebel uh, waiting not so patiently for the right moment to spring his, his deadly trap on his father. And for four years, Absalom stole the hearts of, of, the, of his father's people until he last knew that his moment had come. So Absalom, he comes to David and he requests another meeting with his father. And this is what he told him. He said, listen, you know, when I was living in in Geshur, uh, afraid to return home to Jerusalem because of my great sins, you know, he paints this picture. He said, I promised the Lord while I was there that if if ever I was welcomed home, that I would return to our old home at at Hebron and offer up sacrifices to him. And he said, would it be okay if I returned there now to fulfill the vow I made to the gracious Lord? You ever notice that people, uh, you know, how they can couch things in spiritual language when they're actually devising something. That's what he did. He knows this is, gonna, this is the way to get to my father's heart because I know my father loves God. So if I come to him and I say, you know, I just, I'm so sorry for what I've done, but can I go to this place because I want to honor God? He knows in that moment, David's going to be proud. David's going to be thrilled that his son has finally, you know, awoken. Uh, 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 his son is finally on the right track. And, and he would have been proud of, that deci- of his decision and his devotion to the Lord. He, he was grateful to finally have his son back in his presence again. And in his mind, there's no reason to refuse Absalom's humble, humble request. Now, remember Hebron was the city that, that, that first, that was the capital of Judah. That was where David was first crowned. The, the king of, of Judah, and, and, uh, and so I'm, David, he's confident. Hey, these guys have been behind me from the beginning. I, I feel sure that they're going to welcome Absalom into their, into their town. But he had no idea just how welcome he would be because Absalom went there. He offered no sacrifice to God. 
He fulfilled no vows except for a bitter, bitter vow to take vengeance on his own father. And when the crown prince arrived in Hebron, he, he quickly sp uh, spread word that a rebellion against the king had begun. And the man whom everyone had come to love in these last few years was now ready to steal the throne from his own aging father. And there were many people that rallied to Absalom. He had spent the last four years just building this coalition, getting everything ready, making sure that they loved him more than they loved his father. So when the moment came, he said, you know what? The way David has treated you, it's not right. I should be your king. Let's take him out. And they're all, they all bought in. And they're like, let's do it. And they rallied to Absalom's side. So many, in fact, that soon he had a larger army in Hebron than David had in Jerusalem. And now, far too late, think about this, David was so detached from his family that he didn't realize so many of these things were going on. And now, far too late, David become, became aware of his son's rebellion. And this, the humiliated king made the painful decision to evacuate Jerusalem before Absalom ever arrived to take it by force. See, now listen, remember, David loved Jerusalem. And the last thing he wanted, he did not want to see the capital city destroyed by a civil war. He said, listen, if I'm going to have to fight him, it's not going to be in here. I love this city. Furthermore, he knew Absalom had, this, had the greater army at this point in time. And his only hope was to retreat back to where he had been as a young man, back to the Judean wilderness. Now, now this had to have been a horribly humiliating, heartbreaking moment for David. Because now he realizes he knows, he knows, he knows what the prophet Nathan has said. And he knows all these things that have been prophesied. And now he's seeing them all come true. His own son incited rebellion by turning many of his chief leaders and counselors and greatest warriors against him. And the king and the remnant of his army had to slink out of town like a frightened dog with a tail between his legs. And as they sadly left the city, a man named Shimei was a member of Saul's family began to curse David and he began to throw stones at, at the heartbroken king now I don't know about you but when I'm already heartbroken and somebody does something like that my patience probably is not what it needs to be in that moment and and my temptation would have been to say you you're going to curse me you're going to throw stones at me today of all days don't you know what I've been through Joab take him out but ever unpredictable, David refused to let anybody kill the man. He says, my own son wants to kill me. Why shouldn't this relative of Saul's? And David explained to the loyal soldiers by his side, that he said, don't kill him. He said, don't even stop him from throwing rocks at us. He said, maybe he's speaking from God. Maybe God, he's, he's here, maybe this is a message from God. He said, maybe, maybe he is, maybe it is from God, maybe it's not, we don't know. We can always kill him later if we find out it's not. And with that, the aging king returned to the wilderness of his youth where he would wait once again for a hateful enemy to hunt him down. And here's the big question. Here's the big question. Could the disaster have been averted? That's the question. Amnon had raped Tamar. Absalom murdered Amnon and hated David for never punishing Amnon. 
Absalom's boiling hatred for his father led to a rebellion many years later that drove David out of his kingdom and put a petty, vengeful tyrant on, the, on Israel's throne. Could all of this have been prevented? And I go back to what I said at the very beginning. David was a man of the, of the world. He must have sensed something was off when the quote-unquote sick Amnon requested that his beautiful sister Tamar cook for him by his bedside and hand-feed him a meal. He, he, he should have denied a request like that, but instead he chose to ignore what, what he should have seen, what, what should have been obvious. He chose to ignore it. He refused to pay attention to the inner voice that's in, that was inside of him. And, and, and listen, if there's anything in this, for us tonight that we need to learn is that we need to learn to pay attention to your discernment. L listen, listen to the Holy Spirit when He's speaking to your heart. Um, and, and when I say that, I'm not just saying, you know, just making an arbitrary decision and say, I hear somebody saying to do this. This must be the Holy Spirit. You, you've got to know the Word. You've got to know the Word because He's not going to speak to you that's anything that's out of line of the Word. So you've got to know Him. But I also know this. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. So when He speaks to you, you, you you're probably going to know. And, and if there's any question about it, you can always go and find counsel. You can say, this is what I think God's saying to me. And, and, and just people that, that, that you know know the Lord, that you trust, and you can begin to get counsel. But, but in that moment, when you find yourself in a situation that just does not feel right. Something is off and there's something inside of you that's just that check in your spirit and you're like, I'm just, I just not comfortable with this. Something is not right and, and you can't put your finger on it. In that moment, you need to pay attention. Can I say this too? Men in the room, pay attention to your wife. <laughs> I thought I'd get an amen out of that one. Listen, and here's what I mean by that. And, and I, please don't, I hope... You know, this is probably not politically correct, but I'm just going to teach this anyway. And if you don't like it, you just don't have to, you just have to forgive me. Uh, contrary to what the world says today, there is a, there are differences between men and women. And I say, viva la difference. <laughs> but you know what? God has wired us differently. And I'm not talking, it's not a, it's not a you know, 100% hard and fast rule because there are always exceptions because some women, you know, not everybody thinks the same, but he has wired us differently. And one of the things that's, that's, that's tendency, there's a tendency there is that, is that women tend to think more intuitively and men tend to think more logically. Now, that's not that, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying one is better than the other, they're just different. In other words, women... Uh, because of that, they tend to be much more in touch with their feelings. Guys, the reality is, if you ask a lot of guys, what are you feeling? They can't even answer you because we're so out of touch with our feelings. We're like, I'm feeling something, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> Am I telling the truth to any guys here? And so it's different. Now, here's, here's the thing. There are many, many times when the Spirit of God is speaking to us something that is not logical. So a lot of times us men, it's harder for us to, to think well, that's the voice of God because we tend to think in logical ways. So, you know, I'll give you a silly example. Say there's 
a couple that's considering buying a house. And the man looks at it, and the money makes sense. You know, the neighborhood is good. Everything is working together. I know we already approved for a marriage. Everything's logical. This makes perfect sense. But maybe there's something going on behind the scenes, and the Lord doesn't want you to buy that house. And somehow the wife just does not feel right about it. There's an intuitiveness there because they're in touch with their emotions, and that's often how the Holy Spirit speaks to us. And so... That's why I say, men, pay attention to your wife because it, it, I'll give you another example. Say, say you come into a situation, you meet a, a new couple and, and, there's, and, and you get back home and your wife says, I, there's something about that woman. I don't trust her. You need to avoid her. Listen to your wife. You know, because, because we work so differently, we think so differently that we need to pay attention. And men, that's, we need to learn how to pay attention and not always just try to analyze a situation. You know, one of the, I'm getting way off topic now, but you know, one of the most frustrating things for, for women and ladies, you can back me up if I'm wrong, I'll admit that I'm wrong. But one of the most frustrating things for women is that when, when, when our wife wants to talk to us about an issue that's going on in their life, we think they want us to fix it. And that's not what they're trying to, they don't want you to, because what do we do? Well, I just had a really rough day, and so-and-so did this and all this, and we tell, they tell us all these things, and what are our first, well, you know what I would have said? Well, what you need to do is, and, 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 there's, and the, I'm telling you right now, guys, if we get this, I still, you know, I'm, I'm a man. I still struggle with this. When really what's happening is she wants me to understand what she has gone through today, not try to fix what she's gone through today. Boy, a lot of women shaking, nodding their head up and down. I need to write a book. I need to write a book. But see, guys, like I said, I got way off topic there, but I didn't intend for this to be a marriage counseling session or anything. But, but uh, the, the bottom line is, guys, we, we need to learn that God doesn't always move logically. Uh, and we need to learn to listen to that still, small voice. Because I think it's a bigger struggle for us than a lot of the ladies. Maybe for the ladies, it's not learning to listen to it, it's learning to trust it and be obedient to it, taking that step of having the courage to do that. But for a lot of us men, the problem is it's so quiet and it's so muted by all of our logical arguments that sometimes we miss what God's trying to say. Uh, I don't have an answer for that other than just be quiet and listen. Just, just be quiet and listen sometimes. You know, but in that moment when something's just not right, you need to take notice. Now, sometimes you're going to be wrong. Sometimes it's not the Lord. Sometimes you're like, okay, it was just something in me, maybe my insecurity or whatever. And sometimes you're going to be wrong, but you need to not just necessarily disregard it in that moment when you sense something is off. Uh, you need to question the situation. You need to seek wise counsel. Most importantly, you need to go to God with your concerns. Ask him if, you're, if what you're feeling is from him or it's just your jittery. Because that same woman who doesn't feel good about buying the house, it might be just that it's such a big decision that she's afraid to do anything. And it might not be God speaking, but you need to, you need to understand how to work through those things and be able to, 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 to discern. Is this what the Lord 
is, is, is he in, involved in this? Is he working in us in this situation? And, and when you sense something is wrong, you don't always have to, you know, put it in reverse and get out of there, but at least tap the brakes and slow down and say, hey, wait a minute. Something doesn't sense, I don't sense something, something just seems off. So let's slow down. Let's not get ahead of God in this. Let's take some time to pray. Let's seek his face. Let's not move forward too quickly. You know, hearing Amnon's odd request regarding Tamar. I mean, I, I don't care who you are. But especially someone who has already been through the process of adultery, cover up and murder. He's not a naive man. David surely ignored that check, that inner voice, and a nightmare was the result. His daughter was raped, his one son was murdered, and another son was leading rebellion. So I, my, my challenge for us is let's learn to heed that inner voice. You know, it'd be great if, if, uh, if the Lord... You remember the prophet in the cave? It'd be great if the Lord spoke through the fire. Because then we'd be like, oh, yeah, that's God. It'd be great if the Lord spoke through the earthquake because we'd be like, okay, Lord, if this is you, give me an earthquake. <laughs> okay, I know for sure. But how often is his voice that still, small voice, that whisper? And, and you know what, ladies, you're not immune either. Sometimes all of us, we can get so busy in such a hurry. Life is frantic, isn't it? We're always on the run. And we can get to that place where that still small voice starts getting drowned out a little bit, a little bit harder to hear. And we can get ourselves in a position that turns into a nightmare. You know, that's a big part of why we're, as a church, fasting and praying. Because we're trying to slow down. And we're going to say, Lord, I'm, I want to retune my ears. Because I need to hear from you. I, I want to I be closer to you. So, Lord, I'm going to slow down. I'm going to listen. I'm going to let you do. Because we see 3,000 years ago, a great king didn't listen. And a terrible tragedy ensued that affected an entire nation. So let's learn to slow down. Let's learn to listen. And even when you're not sure, still slow down. Pump the brakes a little bit until you get confirmation and you know, thus saith the Lord in your life. Amen? Amen. Let me pray with you. Father, I do thank you that you do.